Lou, after I do the intro here, I have a controversial opinion for you. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Yep. It's like coming in hot on a Sunday morning. I'm going to come in. It's just something I've been thinking about all morning. Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, (laughs) a music podcast from the rights, Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike. That's Moot Lou. We're going to talk about two albums and one newish single today on the pod. What we do is talk about two albums that one of them, uh, of which that me or Mootloo loves and one that you love, you can send us your suggestions at carlandrewrecordclub.com or go to our profile on social media. You can see a link there or on Spotify right under the player or there's just so many different ways. There's a lot of different options now. Yeah, Apple Podcast Reviews, leave us a five-star rating, leave us in the review. Here's my, you ready for my controversial take? I don't want to spend too long on this because I haven't thought it all the way through. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. Lay it on me. You know, we record these on Sundays. I get up pretty early on Sunday morning just to sort of like re-listen to the records, put my fact sheet together, so and then run. So I get up about 6 a.m. So I was reading and I wound up on a article from Greek Reporter, uh, which cites a, a, uh, a study at the University of California, Berkeley, that says that contrary to, pro- to prior belief, where they believed as many as 2.5 billion T-Rexes were on the earth prior to the, the dinosaurs becoming extinct, that they believe that 1.7 billion T-Rexes at most were on the earth. And Mo, 2 billion T-Rexes doesn't pass the eye test to me. I'm starting to call into question the legitimacy of dinosaurs. You're saying dinosaurs themselves are made up? Well, I mean, if you're going to say 2 billion T-Rexes were on earth, just like, I don't know. I just, (laughs) Well, but but how about this? There's 10 billion of us. Yeah. So you you don't believe that they could have sustained just 20% of that? Well, T-Rexes are only one kind of dinosaur. Oh, right, right. So how many, the question is how many dinosaurs total? Total. Total. Right. When you start thinking about 2 billion T-Rexes alone, and and they're much, much bigger than us, I'm just, I've, I've come in, have you ever encountered a, a dinosaur non-believer in your life? Because there's a lot of them out there, actually. I, I have come into contact with Are dinosaur. they a similar group like uh, flat earthers? No, dinosaur <laughs> non-believers, actually, it seems like it comes from religion is sort of like the genesis of it in that, you know, the, the Bible itself doesn't really account for dinosaurs, but I've come into contact with them before. And I've sort of like just laughed them off. But then, you know, I'm a big eye test guy now. I used to be a big statistics guy and now I'm a big eye test guy. And I just looked at this number and I'm like, 2 billion T-Rexes? Eh, I don't know how many, how many of the other and, and if there were 10 billion dinosaurs and there's only 10 billion people, I don't know. That just it was doesn't a, It was a lot more crowded. I'll tell you that. It doesn't pass the eye test. I you guess know, it was a lot harder to get a drink at the club on a Friday yes. night. Well, yeah. and they didn't have, you know, <laughs> they didn't have giant apartment buildings in which to put the dinosaurs in. That's so true. Were they, were they just all sleeping on the ground? And was there any room? I just, I need... Sleeping I, on, may, maybe kind of sleeping on... on uh, levels of a mountain like if you picture a mountain they were just all covering just 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 picture a mountain covered with dinosaurs and they were kind of you know instead of being 
in buildings, you know, when you look at a big building like in New York City or something, you're like, wow, there's people living in every single one of those little squares there. Yep. Well, this is the same thing, but just picture a mountain as far as the eye can see with just dinosaurs. Covered in dinosaurs. Covered in dinosaurs, yeah. I a blanket be, of dinosaurs. I think I, I just need to do a deeper dive into dinosaurs, I think. I was into it when I was a kid, uh, you know, because there's the Museum of Natural Sciences right near where yep. I grew up and near where I still live. And I, I remember being enthralled by it, hmm. y- you know, but as far as the actual numbers, I never even thought of that. How many were there? And, and how come they haven't made a comeback? Where right. are they? Right. Doesn't see. Yeah. I, don't you think there would be more bones of dinosaurs if there were 10 billion of them? I so, don't. so for the for the dinosaur truthers, <laughs> what are they claiming? Are they claiming that those bones are being reconstructed in a way to look like an animal that they're actually not? Because what are the where are those bones? Those you know the archaeologists they find these bones, they reconstruct these animals. Is there a claim that some of those bones are actually something else? Well, I think the the bigger question is is how much of the bone is actually in the reconstruction? Uh-huh. Is right? I mean, right. So, I, we don't, I guess what I would say is. Music podcast, but occasionally a, a dinosaur, dinosaur podcast. podcast. That. We do. If you're, if you're a non-religious person, what you, you generally say, if you have doubt about the existence of God, heaven, hell, blah, 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 blah. Is and and you don't believe in it. You're like, eh, it's not enough proof. I haven't seen it. You know, where's the proof? And I think if you're a religious person that is anti-dinosaur, you might just be like, hmm, I don't know. I don't. I haven't but, seen but, but following that logic, if what <laughs> what are those bones then that they've? Because there's entire museums dedicated to it. Sure. Are they are they something else? <laughs> are are you are the archaeologists somehow creatively creating something out of? Something Could else? Be. Could be. Or maybe there was just like 100 dinosaurs. How I mean, that, much, that how, would make a lot of sense, actually. Well, no, or maybe, let's not say 100, but 1,000. Maybe 1,000. Right. 10,000 10, I could see. 10,000 would make sense. Right. Across I mean, the I, planet. That's plenty of space for them to roam. Yeah. And fly and stomp on things, you know. Eat stuff, knock down buildings, you know, like the stuff that dinosaurs did. What did they eat, actually? I don't even know. I, I should, know. I should I know. Other dinosaurs, I assume. They Grass. ate? Uh, oh, they were well, cannibals. Well, were, but weren't, weren't, <laughs> this is the dumbest <laughs> conversation we've ever had. Okay. It's high up there. We're I well think, over 100 episodes and this is I, one of the, <laughs> I, I think one of them, the, the big giant one with the little head only ate vegetation. I okay. think that was a, a vegetarian. But the other dinosaurs ate that dinosaur. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what the T-Rex ate, but I know that the, the big one with the little head, like the long neck, I think was a, a vegetarian. Here's, so a, here's a question. Do you think dinosaurs had dreams? Like, could they dream? I don't know. I don't even know if they existed. Could they <laughs> fall in love with it? Could a T-Rex fall in love with the... Like a brontosaurus, right. maybe? Or I don't know. Are they procreating? Well, they're obviously they procreating. They had to. They had yeah. to. I don't know. Anyway. More, more questions than answers. Yeah. I think we need to bring on a dinosaur specialist at this that'd point. Be, that'd be a very interesting pivot. <laughs> 10 billion dinosaurs does not pass the eye test. Is, I agree I guess with you on that. That's, that's, that's a little excessive. It does seem excessive. That's, that's all many. I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not, for anyone who's having a temper tantrum right now, 
I'm mostly sure dinosaurs existed. Probably, maybe. Anyway. For any of you hardcore dinosaur heads? Dinosaur heads, yeah. Dinosaur heads. <laughs> oh, uh, man. All right, so here are our albums today. It's my week. What, what a start, man. I know. My week. <laughs> Interestingly enough, we'll get to it as to why. Chevelle's Wonder What's Next is my choice for an album, which came out in 02, 2002. Listener album is Abraham Alexander's Seasons which came out this year in 2023, suggested by Spotify user, Tammy Wallen. Tammy just, I mean, there wasn't anything other than the album. Oh, Tammy. I know Tammy. I met Tammy. I played a show in Central PA and she was there. Oh, big and, mood uh, fan, Tammy is. Yeah, very, very nice woman and a uh, big fan of the pod. Big fan of both pods, actually. Oh, really? I think the Ricky and the Carl oh. and big music fan. Great. So shout out to Tammy. I've actually met her uh, recently. Thanks, Tammy. Thanks for suggesting. Tammy suggested in Spotify, right under the player, you can see there's a question that says, what album should we review next? And you could stick it in there. And the single is Love is the Way from The Sacred Souls, which we were supposed to get to last time, and we didn't because we were talking about artificial intelligence, which led right into our dinosaur we, We've gone on some real... Uh, we ended the last part of the artificial intelligence... Only to go to dinosaurs this time, so yeah, kind of two ends of the spectrum. Let's start with that. Let's start, even though we're, we we're, we sort of center ourselves around albums, I want to make sure we get to it. So why don't we start with DC Sacred Souls? Yeah. Now, is this a track or a band you had heard of or were familiar never with? Never heard of them. Never heard of them. They're this new to first... me. They're new okay. to me. Uh, I mean, they're a very new band. They've only okay. been around really for a few years, but uh, the track is Love is the Way, and they're a San Diego-based trio consisting of Josh Lane on vocals, Alex Garcia on drums, and Sal Samano on bass. Now, they first started releasing singles in early... What? What's going on over there? Nothing, nothing. I just, I, <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing. Actually, it's best. It's best we don't do it. It's best we don't do it. It's best we don't do it. Uh, so right. we'll leave it. Leave it. Leave, leave it to it Beaver. The, we'll leave it to Beaver. The mind of the listener as to what I could be grinning over. So continue, <laughs> continue. I'm uh, sorry. I'm sorry. So uh, this it's a trio. It's a trio of musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, first started releasing singles uh, in early uh, 2020. So really just a little over three years ago. And they've had a very rapid ascension. I mean, shortly after they started playing their first club shows, they ended up signing to Daptone Records, which is a very prestigious label, especially if you're doing R&B and soul music and even a little more of this retro kind of thing. So in a short time after playing, they get signed. Uh, they started releasing singles. In the first year, they released a few. Can I Call You Rose? Give Us Justice. Will I See You Again? And in a matter of time, had amassed millions of streams. So they definitely mm. found an audience pretty quickly. Started getting recognition from national press outlets like Rolling Stone, as well as from well-known artists and producers like everyone from Gary Clark Jr. and and Timbaland so, and, and any number of others. So the, a band that kind of caught on within the industry as well as far as, uh, you know, sometimes we talk about tastemakers in, in press and in radio, but sometimes more established artists themselves are, in a sense, you know, tastemakers. I mean, if, if a bigger name, like a Timbaland, embraces somebody... Sure. That's going to... be huge. It could be huge. It can bring a yeah. lot of uh, attention to somebody. Yeah. 
So every once in a while, you have a group of players who come together, who even if they haven't been playing together all their lives, they'll. it sounds like they have. And I'm going to read a quick quote from Alex Garcia, the drummer. He says, every step of the way has just been so organic. Things just seem to happen naturally when the three of us get together. And sometimes there's just that inherent synergy that happens with three musicians, and it seems like these guys have, have found it, where it's almost instinctive. And when that happens, and you've, especially if you have a good set of songs, and I guess the right exposure, things can take off pretty quickly. It's not like they're selling out arenas, but they're touring all over, getting bigger looks on uh, festivals and support slots and stuff. So it's 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 taken off pretty quickly. Now, the debut album dropped in summer of 2022, last summer, and it was co-produced by Gabriel Roth, who's the co-founder of Daptone Records. Received a great deal of critical acclaim, and since then they've been touring extensively. Now, this track, which barely fits our parameters of new, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Barely, just barely. Yeah. It's sort of yeah, right on the edge. But came out in October 22 as a standalone track after the record came out. I'd say it's a song that's not so much a love song as it is a homage to being in love. That's kind of what it is. When I listen to their music, when I listen to this song, I hear some of my favorite soul influence. I mean, this this was genetically engineered, this music for me, I feel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as soon as I heard it, it, it was a it was an of course moment. But but it's it's, you know, it's easy to do music that is retro, but it's not easy to do it and make it good. Very difficult. Great point. You know what I mean? Like, like anyone can copy a sound, and a, but there's a, a difference between doing it and making it pop and doing it and not making it pop. I think a lot of that comes down to the songs. But, but, uh, but yeah, it's, there's, there's probably plenty of artists out there that are trying to do this, but they're clearly doing it incredibly well. Yeah, and I mean, you, when you listen, you can hear, I hear you know, late 60s era Curtis Mayfield, the impressions, you hear a little bit of the Philly sound. I definitely hear on this track in particular, a heavy Marvin Gaye influence in Josh yeah, Lane's sure. vocal. It's Absolutely. unmistakable, right? But it's like you said, it's not just retro. I mean, yes, there is that component, but I think there is, when you listen to this song, when you listen to other tracks of theirs, there is a distinctive musical personality that's coming through. And I think it's a testament you know, just to just to kind of piggyback on what you were saying, it's a high level of songwriting and musicianship and production craft. They somehow create that sound. And I've heard other bands do it. Like when I think of Sharon Jones and Dap Kings, it, it you know, music used to sound different. I think because of how records were made and cutting the tape. And a lot of times it wasn't you didn't have all the production and editing gimmicks that we have now. You had to get in the room, get a performance. And cut, and if you cut the two inch tape, there is a warmth that happens there. And if you mix down on the two inch tape, and I love bands that can sort of reinvent that sound because you don't modern music for the most part doesn't sound like that. The warmth is hard to explain to somebody who who isn't paying specific attention to it. But right. you're totally, totally correct, and they are they are able to achieve the sort of feel and uh, and warmth that you would find on a, a a record that came out. You would say that this is 60s-ish? I, I, yeah, I would know. say late 60s, early yeah. 70s. Uh, uh, that, that sound, there's a very particular sound, the, you know, particularly of R&B and soul music, the, the way it, the way it sounded. Yeah. Yeah. And this, I, I think comes pretty close, you know, it's a, it's a great tune, but it, you, you could tell me that it was a song from that era, like a hit song from that era. I would buy it. 
I would right. Totally if you were to just put it on, you had no context. One hundred percent would buy it. Yep. 100%. And I would almost at first listen, think, "Oh wow, this is like a Marvin Gaye outtake," because he, he he sound he doesn't do this on every track. Other he's pretty dynamic as a, as a vocalist, but on this one, he just channels the Marvin Gaye influence. Like it's it's right on the sleeve there, and and again, not every vocalist can pull that off, because with Marvin Gaye singing, it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just a timbre. But it was his phrasing and his delivery that was very, very, very specific. And to channel that into a song is not, not every vocalist can do that. There's something about the way that his lines end almost in a fade. Yeah. Do you, well, see what I'm, do you understand yes. what I'm saying? That when he is singing the, it's, it's da, 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 da. And that's a, yeah. that's a classic yeah. Marvin yeah. Move. Uh, we're going to have to do one of his records at some point. Probably one of the sure. 70s. Maybe one of the... Everyone knows what's going on. I don't think we should do that one, but may, maybe I'll pick one of the others. And yeah, it, it's a very particular thing you're saying. It's almost like the sustain on his voice mm -hmm. trills off in a very particular way. Yeah, yeah. This is good. It's a good tune, man. It, nice. It, I'm glad it, you liked it. it. Yeah, it's certainly it's not not in the in the like specific pocket for me or anything, and I, it is for you, which made me smile <laughs> as soon as I listened to it. But it is, it's it would have been easy to write off, I think, as uh, just sort of a rip off. But it isn't. It it seems like it is a sort of a a tribute and a inspired by rather than a rip off. Absolutely, you know? yeah. It's, yeah. I would say it's in the category of emulation over imitation. That's a very fine line there between the two. Sure, for sure. Why don't we do my album and then we'll do uh, Tammy's album. So my album is Chevelle's Wonder What's Next. Chevelle from the Chicago suburbs. Not originally originally, but mostly originally three brothers. Is Pete Leffler is the singer. Uh, Sam Leffler is the drummer. And at this point in their evolution, Joe Leffler is on bass. He wasn't the very first bass player as he was the youngest of the three brothers, but joined the band within the first year. Actually left the band in 05, was replaced by Sam and Pete's brother-in-law, who was in the band for the next 15 years. It's a and family now, affair. This yeah. Now, now is just, he, he left the band a few years ago, and now I, I, I assume it is just Pete and Sam, and they, they do a, a bass player for hire at this point, I think is the way it works. So they're called Chevelle because their dad like loved cars growing up, built hot rods and they like cars too. So it is it's not any deeper than they loved cars. And they started playing together in their garage when they were teenagers. Um, it's all self-taught, you know, uh, that was uh, Sam is on drums, Pete is on guitar and Joe was on bass. And by the time, it was funny, they started, when they started playing out, and playing clubs in the area. Joe was, I think, 15 years old, the bass player. I, I think, I think I, I'm pretty sure Sam is the oldest and Pete is the next oldest, but all just teenagers at the time. They eventually put out a seven song demo and they get signed to Squint Records. 
Now, Squint Records was part of Word Entertainment, which is a Christian record label. And so by the time I liked Chevelle, which was the end, you wonder what's next is their second album. Point number one is their first album, which came out on Squint. And there was this sort of conversation about whether they were a Christian band or they weren't a Christian band. And it was interesting to see the quote I had always seen from Sam was that the reason that people consider us a Christian record label is because Squint signed us, our record ended up in Christian bookstores, and that's why we're not a Christian band. But then I went, I, I think it's interesting what, what it means to be that, a, a Christian band, because I found this interview from this website, Crosswalk, as point number one came out. And this is the quote from Pete. We want to reach the person that probably doesn't even go to church and probably doesn't have Christian music or Christian friends. I would like to be in their CD collection and I would like to meet them at a show to influence them in a positive way. That's the kind of market we're shooting for. We're going to be playing a lot of secular clubs and rarely any Christian shows. That's where we feel God is leading us. A lot of Christians get a bad rap even before they know you. We're kind of keeping a low profile and we just wanna see where God takes us. Then we'll look for opportunities to witness. Squint is really trying to break down the walls where Christian bands are labeled so that people will listen to it because it's good music and not because the music have the same faith as they have, which I think is, Pretty interesting in that what I think what they're saying is, is that their, their faith is important to them, but they do not want to be in a world where they're only playing to people because they're there because of their faith and, and that they're unaccepting of others, which I think is a, a pretty fine line, but interesting considering that there is so much of a market. There's a, a Christian rock band market where oh, you yeah. go, you go to these shows and they are packed. And these, you wonder, I remember in the MySpace days, you would wonder why, why does that band have so many plays? And you would <laughs> listen to it and you'd be like, Oh, you know, but I, I think it, it, it's all pretty interesting diving a little deeper into that, which I never had. This is a trip because I didn't, maybe I just didn't absorb enough of the lyrics specifically. I just never would have guessed that they were, there was even a religious component to this. But I don't think there is. It's interesting. Like, I don't, I don't, the lyrics, I don't think that they are. I think like what they are is people who are Christian and take that seriously, but that's not part of it. I, I think it's probably an interesting thing to be a religious person, but to make art and say, this is not religious. This is spe specifically not religious, but I am very religious. And normally we, I think we consider people who are deeply religious, who make art to find the art to be connected deeply to the religion. And I think this is, I think they're specifically saying that it's not, you know? Yeah. It, I think, in a sense, if you tether yourself to that, and like you said, there's a huge market for it. Yep. But if you tether yourself to that, you are kind of closing the door on certain types of listeners. Yeah. Uh, you know, you might have a big audience, but it's finite. There, there's a ceiling to it. So for it's sure. great in a sense that they want to, they want people to know what they're about and that what's important to them, but that it, that the music it sort of transcends that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, the, to your point, it can be limiting. Like Switchfoot is a religious band and Meant to Live was such a big hit. And I do think that there was probably like a limiter on them 
in terms of how big they would be as a band because of the the religious aspect to the the music you know it could you get a single pop off or whatever but i think that there's a that like some people are turned off by that and you know and and don't want to consume it because of it even though it might guarantee you uh it's probably probably limits your ceiling but like guarantees a higher floor in terms of success maybe it's in a sense you're jumping into a scene so you're right that that's a great way of putting it there's a higher floor because if you're part of a very particular scene and you're good you are going to probably find an audience quicker than a lot of sure. other bands i think about the jam scene yeah yes. you know and, and i have some friends who do very very well in that scene and if you're good and you put in the work you will find an audience there it's maybe a little tougher now because there's so many bands doing that but uh, but then the question is, what's the ceiling? Like right. How many jam bands cross over necessarily? Uh, I mean, if the Grateful Dead was the archetype of it, you know, I guess Fish, would you even say Fish has crossed over? Not really. I mean, Not really. No, not at all, actually. But and they're the huge. I mean, they can do seven nights at Madison Square Garden, but, I you think, know. you know, Dave Matthews is in that world, but they actually went the reverse way and started as a, a non-jam band and became a jam band, which is why I think there is crossover, but it's harder to cross over the other way, I think. Yeah, Dave Matthews' band is very, is singular, I would say. Yes. Because mm-hmm. they did have three, four hits on those first few records. But you're right, the appeal is more... At this point. Yeah, in in the vein of a Grateful Dead kind of thing. Yeah. So point number one, which I was familiar with, is produced by Steve Albini. Rebuke, don't choke on this twisted dream. Cause he'll say, pay for That's some producers. I feel like their name comes up like once a month. Yep, and Albini is one of them. Well, Albini is famous for not not necessarily being Rick Rubin esque, but but wanting a very raw sound and not overproducing things, which is particularly interesting when you hear "Wonder What's Next" versus. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't feel like that's the aesthetic at all. No, no, and I remember. I, I, I'm misquoting him because it was one moment in time a long time ago. But I remember when I was living in Chicago being at dinner with the Chevelle guys when one of their albums was coming out. Oh, so this is a band you've actually interacted with from your radio days. A few times, not not in any deep way. You know, like the record label was there. They were doing a show for us. It wasn't like, I, I don't want to act like they're my they're certainly not my friends and they would never remember me, but I, I've certainly interacted with them. I've interviewed them a few times, all that kind of stuff. And I, I think I remember Sam sort of laughing and saying that Steve Alpini didn't do anything, you know, that, uh. that when we were talking about it. So that, you know, a famous, certainly a, a, has a lot of great credits and just might not have been what they wanted, but it did, it did produce a sort of a, like this was a band that was, definitely building at the time that people were aware of. So Squint goes out of business, which makes them free agents. And there was a bit of a bidding war for them. And Epic Records, part of Sony, gets them, was a big rock label at the time. And they hired Garth Richardson to produce Wonder What's Next. Garth Richardson produced some Rage Against the Machine, 
Mudvayne um, was a sound, was an engineer on a lot of a lot of records and produced a bunch of records in this world in this sort of like sort of the heavier alt rock alt metal kind of thing yeah it's exactly the way i would describe them if i had to alt alt metal or whatever so this what was particularly interesting about this album to me and i could not find anywhere on the internet talking about it is this is one of the first albums i remember sort of everyone having before it came out and so like oh so th this was a time where you could download MP3s, O2, and burn them onto CDs, but it wouldn't be where you would send MP3s to people. Like it was, it was much harder at the time. But I remember them continuing to back up this album. And every time they would back up the release, more people would have the album. And another conversation I remember, they were on OzFest in 03. They were playing the main stage at OzFest. We did this promotion at WYSP where it was called OzFeast, where people would have access to this room that had food in it. And we would have the bands from OzFest come in every hour or so, and you could meet X-Band. And I remember Chevelle being in there with Cheryl Valentine from the record label. I remember, hi, Cheryl. And... um I remember saying to them, hey, because at this point, it was, the album was popular. They had had, they were probably on their second, it Send the Pain Below was probably out. So they, you know, there was, might've been platinum by now. I ended up selling 2 million albums. And I was like, did you guys know that everyone had this album before it came <laughs> out? And they sort of laughed and they all looked at Cheryl who uh, who like sort of like brushed it off or whatever. But I do think it was a, a particularly interesting moment in time where where the where a, a, an album leaked and everyone got it. And it just wasn't something that had that that had ever happened before. It's strange because we don't even think of music consumption in that way. No. Anymore. It wasn't that long ago. It was like 20 years ago. Yeah. But there was something still more precious about acquiring a record and then, oh, if, you, if it leaked and you got it. Yeah. Now it's just, I don't know, it's just up there. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it, well, the, there's, it's not there's the same the, idea anymore. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason why they don't leak and they're just out is because physical product, the, a lot of the times the leaking would happen when the physical product would go from one person to another. But now there's no physical product. You could just put it, if, if you wanted to release on Spotify and Apple on a Friday, you can upload it on Thursday. <laughs> Do yeah. you know what I mean? No one has yeah. to have it before they need to have it. Or SoundCloud, so, Bandcamp. I mean, people just throw stuff up there all the time. Yeah. So, man, I fucking loved this record from the first time I ever listened to it. And the way I described it, to myself was like, this is like if Tool just made a normal rock album instead of everything being so grandiose and difficult that sonically, and talk about the difference. So they've put out, this ended up selling 2 million records. They say when you're So 
was a big hit. Send the Pain Below was a big hit. And they've put out seven records since then. And they've become sort of a rock radio mainstay. Can tour with anyone, can tour with heavier bands, but could also tour with Nickelback or something and be fine. And at this time, they were, they were, firmly in the sort of new metal touring scene or whatever, would mostly tour with them, but was on OzFest or whatever. I remember hearing it and thinking, wow, listen to the drums, like how big the drums are and listen to the wall of sound that the guitars are and listen to the, and it's something that became, you know, started with Nirvana and became a signature of new metal, but the, the sing to scream thing that he did so well, a good singer and a very like thick screamer. And one of the things they did with this album that I think contributes to the just heaviness and bassiness of it is this, this album is mostly in drop B tuning, which uh-huh. is what seven string guitars are, are in B. And you know, point number one was in drop D, which is a, a pretty popular- That's you know, more common, I think, drop yeah, B tuning. Yeah. yeah like, even Jimmy World is in drop D, but Godsmack, I think, is in drop D flat, which is like most of the, a lot of the new metal bands are usually in drop D flat, but drop B is, is very low and, uh, and deep. And I think it, it just, I loved so much about it because it took the heaviness and the, the sonic nature of what I liked about heavy music, but put it in more it was easier to stomach. Like it was easier to consume. And I, I love every song on this album. Like this is a beginning to end, love it. Just a few highlights. I'm very curious to see what you think. Family System. Got it right there. First, first oh, really? Right there, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this is an incredibly heavy intro to the record, but has such a groove and a massive sort of movement to it. And also, not a lot of lyrics, but a couple of great ones. Uh, what a man's got, he'll learn to hate, is a, a just sort of like a great, lyric and moment of conflict and the 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 song again is is consumable but is so heavy i think yeah i you mentioned the lyrics mm-hmm. this is like record once you live with it that i think if i think of other bands that are in this general direction i think they're at a different level mm-hmm. lyrically and that's one thing that sets them aside but you you, you put it perfectly you said it's if you like heavy music but more digestible. That's why it's perfect for someone like me because yes, just like these sacred souls, maybe not as much in your wheelhouse. This isn't as much in my wheelhouse, but it just finds that sweet spot between something that's still undeniably melodic and still heavy. Yeah, and 
you know, you can just, it's a little more accessible, I would say, for, for a broader listening base. Yep. Send the Pain Below ended up being their biggest hit. The Red was a big hit, but Send the Pain Below was a number one rock song. So send I think one of the things I like about Send the Pain Below is I talk about the the wall of sound from the guitars, but there are so many different textures, I think, that the guitar sounds create throughout this album. And Send the Pain Below does have that wall, but also does have textures within it that are not part of that wall that I think almost make the wall stand out even, even more. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think, and I think that's true for most of the record. Yeah, that the yep. way the guitars sound, the way they're mixed, it's not. It's also atypical to music that you hear that's recorded like this. That, that yeah. heavier music, there is something more atmospheric in in what's happening sonically, and it's hard to put your it's hard to pinpoint it. But you actually put it a good way. It's not. It's not your typical heavy guitar wall. Yep. It's there's something there's something more layered and atmospheric about it, which is I don't know if that's a testament to how they tracked it. I'm always curious about this. Is it in the way that it was tracked is, or is it in the way that it was mixed? Right. That's right, always right, a right. conundrum for me when I listen to something. And because once you get into making a record and you get in the weeds with that, it becomes this gray area. But mm -hmm. however, however it came together, it's, it's, it's pretty engaging musically. And the, the other one, and again, I love every song on this album, but, and that isn't true of every album I bring up on here, but every, I like, think like I was listening to this again. I was like, fuck, banger after banger. Forfeit. There's another song in which they, so so much of the guitar part in this is the pick scraping against the the strings, and and doing that for an entire song to create sort of a melody and and an interesting like syncopation too that yeah like he's almost playing he's almost doing percussion with the the guitar do you know what I mean Yeah, I love that you mentioned the syncopation in that. That's another thing they do really well. Uh, that track, but is uh, almost turning the guitar into another form of percussion, or or the way it sits against the drums creates this polyrhythm. Mm -hmm. And again, musically, I think there's something different about this band than other than other groups that I've heard that are operating in this sound. It's it's like there's if you parse out what it is musically, if you were to examine it and a b it to a lot of other records. It just it stands out. It's there's more nuance and detail, I think, in how it's recorded and, and how it's mixed. The, the lyrics in Forfeit are great too. There's one line about halfway through the song: uh, um, "Learn from this prehistoric dance and refrain from talking. It'll solve our problems. Medicated to do some good or find a 
or find a way to relate or just shut up. Is like, is uh, and his his screaming. I had forgotten what a great screamer Sam is. The just a well timed, but a very and that, that pulls it off well live too. But a like a really good screamer, just a really good. Screamer. I'm not sure I've heard another vocalist that can go so effortlessly between Back and forth. between yeah. the two. Sometimes it's not even verse to verse. Sometimes it's like within a verse. Yeah, yep. Like the song, uh, Grab Thy Hand. Yeah, yeah. it's a great tune. It's like yeah. line to line, he's changing it. And I'm like, wow, this is just for the vocal ability to be able to pivot between something smooth and clean and then scream and then to get back to the same part of your voice. Now I'm wondering in the studio if he is he singing that straight through or, or are is they, he are singing they it separately? But you, yeah, you've heard I mean, him live, you would have a better idea of how he does it. Well, I mean, I think he can do it. My guess is given how well this record is produced that he did it separately that would be my guess he can do it live it's you mentioned that song grab thy hand almost has like a spookiness that uh that a wu-tang track yes has to it that you know eerie I mean? eerie yep. sort of and that gets me to think of something else because you bring it all the way back to a uh, family system yeah when i hear and i hear this with other you know well well-crafted metal records or just great metal bands when you hear the beginning of Family System, that melody is, it's like a Middle Eastern melody. It reminds me of something from Turkish music or, huh. or or Arab music. It's, I guess because I grew up traveling to Turkey, I recognize certain melodies. I always saw this connection between uh, Turkish melodies or just, you know, melodies that you hear from that part of the world in, that, in, in music and then what metal composers are doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's interesting that you you see that connection and you, I I wonder how that where that comes from. Do you know? I think it's there's a more of a sensibility in metal than any other genre of microtones. Okay, and and ha, well half steps but microtones within the melodies. Uh, you know, in in Turkish music, the actual scale is different. Hmm. So there's actually microtones within microtones. But I think that's what I hear. King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. What incredible name. Yeah. And, and they've, they've blown up, by the way. They're uh, oh, they, had, they definitely have. That's so they were doing was, like three nights at Red Rocks. and It was wow. all the Carl, by the way. The Carl. We, we were the ones. We, yes. We, we put that into the stratosphere. <laughs> we were but, on them early. Yeah. But they have that in a more deliberate way. With metal, I don't know if it's just, just creating sometimes that eerie quality or that ominous element in the music. But I'm I'm always curious as to is that something is that something do you think people who are big metal fans do they even think of it that way or is that just sort of me because of my frame of reference? Well, I do think that metal more than a lot of different music genres that the the fans that are really into it are into the music part of it are just into because there's so much metal that is so precise technically when you get into 
the guys who play fast or the a band like Meshuggah that has odd time signatures. And I think that is a, there's like a, a dorkiness to extreme <laughs> metal fans that allows them to want to know about those influences and where it comes from. So not all of them, but I think it does exist somewhere. Yeah. It's just, uh, Whenever I like a, a record that has that sound and influence, I always come back to that same thought. It, because if you hear something in Turkish music, obviously it's in a completely different context. Right, 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 right. I right. mean, it's so sonically the world around it is totally different. But when you just isolate the melodies, it's that. And just just a few others. I mean, you hit uh, Great Minds Think Alike, another chapter of Great Minds Think Alike. You single the tunes out, but send the pain below. Now, I didn't know that was the single. Yeah, because I yeah, know frame of reference. Yeah, what an incredible tune! I think that song exemplifies a feeling that a lot of people can relate to, of wanting the approval of someone who gets some sort of strange sadistic joy by manipulating you, or yeah, from yeah. manipulating you and hurting. Because some of the lines, like, "Oh man, I like having hurt, so send the pain below." Where I need it, you used to beg me to take care of things and smile at the thought of me failing. But long before, long before having hurt, I'll send the pain below. Send the pain below. I mean, once in a while, you hear a song that strikes right to the heart of something intense that you felt, or something that's been traumatic, and that that song just channels that perfectly. I think too, for a song that ended up being a hit, I, the chorus isn't a normal chorus. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, not it isn't. A, it's not a conventional hook at all. Actually, no. It's it's really it's it's you know much like suffocating, and then they re sing. I send the pain below, but it it it's it's actually amazing that it tested well because it from a, a radio standpoint because it doesn't it doesn't fit that normal hook format that you would expect a big hit to. And once in a while, I wonder: is it because of the lyrical thing? that is pretty is pretty pretty clear and present right out of the gate. I mean, as far as what it's communicating. Yeah. Every once in a while I wonder if a song becomes a hit. You know, ninety five percent of the time it's because it's because of the hook or some kind of big melody there. But occasionally there's something about a lyric that resonates with people in such a way mm -hmm. that maybe it doesn't have to be a conventionally constructed yeah. song as far hook. as you know, pop hook kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. One other other turns of phrase, the song Comfortable Liar. Yeah. But the concepts song. of the songs are interesting to me. Yeah. Like someone who's comfortable being a liar. I mean... that put in some different ways but i've never heard it said in that way and i'm always interested if someone writes a song that taps into something that you've heard before but not not framed in this exact way it's unique in that sense someone you know comfortable liar yeah he there's not a lot of lyrics in me and this is we, we talk sometimes about how many lyrics are in songs there's these songs aren't extensively written, but they are poetic and carefully written and great turns of phrase to your point. I love that. When every line, the sense of economy in writing, to me, that's the greatest skill to have. I, think, I always think pop songwriting, but any kind of music, well, no matter what the genre is, if it's, if it's song structured, 
if you can make every line be something meaningful, I think that's the most difficult thing to do. It's actually easier. I don't say it's easier, but it's less challenging to be verbose and get your point across. Mm -hmm. But some of the most undeniably great songs just hit you with every line. Yeah, for sure. Yep. And one well, other one other oh, thing I'll say is uh, yeah. the song "Wonder What's Next." Was that one of the ones you mentioned? Uh, it was not. It was Wonder not. Uh, just that one, when you hear that one, the level of musicianship on that track, that that just that relentless attack of the of the drums and the guitar, it's just, that's one of the songs you crank up and it just melts your face. I, I fucking love the drums on this album. And I, the, I think the first time I had ever heard tone like this from drums was on Tool's second full-length uh, anima, which came out in 96, 95. I think we've done that album before. It was but early same, on we did that one, I think. Was it, was that, what was the EP? What, the, wasn't there an EP that had a couple tracks from Dobbs? That was my introduction to Tool, was the first yeah, so, EP they did. Yeah, so their EP was called, hold on, it was, uh, was oh, no, no, I don't want to look it up. I know what their EP was called. It was called, because it came out, Undertow was the full, first full length. The EP was, fuck. Now I'm going to have to look it up because it's going to drive me <laughs> I seen it right. It was like four oh, studio opiate. tracks. Right, right. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it's four studio tracks and then two live tracks at the end that are from Correct, Dobbs. from Dobbs. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's still my favorite Tool record is that first EP because it was before they became as grandiose. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first, I mean, we could to do Tool again at some point, but the first... First three recordings, I think, were were my favorite. But yeah, it was recorded at Dobbs. Two of the songs were recorded at Dobbs for Opiate. Well, yeah, and that was the first time I'd ever heard drums sound like this, and I just think it it's it's perfect. I love the way they did it. So I'm glad you liked the album too. I was yeah, sure great, great listen. As far as this, let's call it alt metal. I think it's maybe the best thing I've I've heard. Wow, good. Uh, and and being released early did not hurt its. The trajectory is was still their big, biggest selling album. They're doing a few festivals this summer. They are playing. They are playing the four night Rocklahoma festival. Rocklahoma is that so in the, Oklahoma? It is. They, it is. They are playing the Friday night. Godsmack is headlining. Then it is Chevelle, Daughtry, Code Orange. Here are the headliners for the three nights. The reunited Pantera. Oh, Without wow. Dimebag is playing Sunday night with Rob Zombie and then Corey Taylor from Slipknot. Saturday night is Limp Biscuit and Bush headlining. Friday night is Godsmack and Chevelle. And the kickoff party the night before it starts, Warrant, LA Guns, and Bullet Boys. Man. 
That's, I, that's rock mania right there. Yeah, like I, I have <laughs> no desire to spend four nights with these people at, at all, ever. But it, that's a that's a good lineup. I'm sorry. That's like a, that's like a who's who lineup. of, uh, well, everything yeah. from kind of, some of those bands are more 90s, right? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, into the new metal kind of thing. Just so yeah. that, uh, it's a multiple eras, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. I would love to. I mean, it starts in the 80s with Warrant and LA that's Guns. That's right. Wait, yeah. did we, we did a Warrant record, didn't we? We did. We did Cherry Pie. Yeah, that was a great, yeah, that's a great yeah. album. <laughs> great album. So speaking of great albums, let's do our listener album, which came from Tammy, and she wanted Abraham Alexander's C, I don't know if it's C Sons or Seasons. It looks like it could be either way. play on words. It's C-Sons, so maybe it's, it's both, I think. Yeah. This is the part in the movie scene where I take your hand and say, if you let me love you and let me hold you, you see those tears run dry. And darling, if you let me love you and let me hold you, you see. Cool record. Yes, and a great, great suggestion uh, from Tammy. And, you know, this is an artist that I've been hearing about, but mm-hmm. this was the first time I really had a chance to listen and uh, just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this one. He is a very interesting and, at times, tragic story. So for this intro, I'm going to go a little heavier on quotes because okay. sometimes when you have a new, a brand new artist, I mean, he's been around for a little bit, but as far as really hitting the national, international scene, he's newer. When you have an artist that makes a debut album that is so autobiographical, which this one is, I like to just hear directly from the artist, like their, their life story and how that's manifested in the record. So there are a couple different interviews I'm going to parse some quotes out from one was a interview. He just, both of these are just from a few weeks ago. So this record is really new. Uh, one was with Melissa Block on NPR for All Things Considered. And the other one was with a writer named e- Ivan McClellan for an uh, online magazine called Tegavas. So it's interesting to hear him talk about his story. He's born in Greece to Nigerian parents. His family moved to Texas when he was 11. And I'll take the first quote from the NPR interview. Melissa Block asked him, she said, why did your family decide to leave Greece? And Abraham Alexander says, quote, you know, they wanted better for their children. We were poor. I mean, like poor is even a kind word for that. We absolutely had nothing. And there was a lot of racial tension that was going on in Greece as well. And just to get certain jobs, you know, was difficult. So they applied for a lottery visa. We got accepted by the states and they thought Texas was the best place to raise a family. Now, sadly, tragedy struck not too long after he and his family uh, moved moved here to the States. His, his mother was killed in an accident. I'll read another quote. Oh, no. Yeah, horrible. I mean, just, uh, he went through a lot as a as a child, and and that comes through in this in this record, as you see. I mean, even without knowing that, when you listen to this, I think you hear it. There's elements that there's a, a state of catharsis in this record. Once you know the story, it's even more powerful. So I'll read another quote from that same NPR interview. Abraham Alexander says, quote, she was killed by a drunk driver going the opposite way of the highway. And I would say it's the first time as a kid that I felt like the world did me wrong. You know, in the last few years, I've been trying to understand why. And in a way, writing this record was cathartic and that I could express those feelings again. And my mother was and is my rock and she's still an inspiration to me. And so when I close my eyes to write a song, I can't help but think about my mom. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, that's a... Uh you know, when something, when some sort of childhood trauma happens to you like that, uh, if, you know, in a sense, if 
the best way you can process it as you get older is through something creative. And that's the power of music and the power of songwriting uh, is you as the artist, you as the writer can process your, your trauma, your grief through a tune. But then when people hear it, it also can play that same role in however they absorb it. Uh, I'm just thinking about the song, my song, Gone Forever. You know, my friend, I never forget you. And you know that you'll always be a light that shines in my darkest hour. You will always be there to me. Cause those are the days that are gone forever. And I wrote that for my friend Dante, who uh, Dante Bucci is a great musician. One of my best friends from college and played with me in all my bands. And which That's is a great a, tune, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And I, I thought about this tune when I heard this record because so much of what is in this album is is catharsis, like you hear in that quote. And when I wrote Gone Forever, it was coming from a place of just feeling so distraught over losing such a good friend that writing that song was healing for me. And then the crazy thing is now when I been out on the road, I'll have people come up to me and say what that song meant to them. Mm. Uh, there was one guy in particular, I was in North Carolina, I was doing a club show, and he, I have never forget this, he came up to me and was like, man, he's like, your song Gone Forever, uh, you know, he had just lost his father, it's like, it's been, he's like, I listen to it all the time, because, wow. and I'm like, man, that just, put all the industry nonsense, everything that's bad about the music industry aside, those are the moments that keep you in it, uh, that yeah. you can have that connection with somebody. Now, the interesting thing about Abraham Alexander is he hasn't been doing it that long. He really only started you know, playing music about seven years ago. And it seems like he's one of those people that the moment he picked up the guitar, he had an innate gift for, for songwriting. So I'm going to take this next quote from the Tegavas interview. And he says, quote, Music has been in my family for a long time, but it never resonated with me because of the pains associated with it. I tore my ACL playing college soccer. My girlfriend at the time, Fran, handed me a guitar and was like, hey, do something with this. I was learning how to. <laughs> I like that. Hey, just just do something. Do here. something with it. I like that. <laughs> sure, I'll try. Yeah, it's like sometimes you just got to jump in and do it, right? That's the easiest way to get started. Yeah. So like, I was learning how to play, and I met these two guys named Austin Jenkins and Josh Block. They're these producers who record local artists in Fort Worth, which that's a big part of his emergence as an artist is that Fort Worth scene, which is a, I didn't know this. Apparently, a very vibrant music scene. They said, hey, you should come out and sing. And I was like, man, I can't sing at all. And they said, well, if you can hum, come to the studio. I went, and that experience truly changed my life. It was a beautiful experience being in that studio and seeing them bring songs to life and add instruments to it, end quote. So, you know, occasionally you have those big life bulb moments in life. And for some people, it's just, oh, like, this is what I love to do. You maybe didn't even fully realize that it could have that force or that effect in your life, but here you go. And, you know, after that, it was a rapid ascension. He started playing open mics, immersing himself in that Fort Worth scene. Uh, the first few singles of his came out in 2019, and kind of similar to These Sacred Souls, been a pretty rapid uh, ascension since then. He signed a Dual Tone Records, and this record just dropped last month, so... Oh, wow. Yeah, just, uh, I think he... Uh, you know, he not br- fucking around at no, all. Yeah, yeah, brand new, brand new. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I think he'd been releasing some singles from this record, but the album itself just came out. I know he was in town playing the non-com 
for okay. uh, XPN. So, I mean, he's just, the big push is kind of happening for him uh, right now. He cites everyone from Michael Jackson to Otis Redding to Gary Clark Jr. to Leon Bridges as influences. And it seems, and this is another thing that made him, made me feel an even deeper connection to his music was he loves Bill Withers. And uh, I would, yeah, yeah, I would, uh, on any given day, I would say Bill Withers is my favorite artist. Uh, it just, he was so distinctive at that time. And I'll read a quick quote from that same interview, the Tegovas interview. He says, Bill Withers inspired me a lot over the years, how simplistic his style was and how unique it was back then. He had that full sound and was a beautiful storyteller, and that's something I'm trying to keep alive. I love that because there was when you listen to Bill Withers' music, especially his earlier records, there's this directness and just this earnest quality that comes through. And I think whether people think of it consciously or not, that's what they respond to. Mm. If you think of a song like Lean On Me, yeah. which is an iconic song, uh, it's just it's telling a story, and it's telling a story that people can relate to in in, a, yeah. in in their own way. And his delivery, his voice was just incredible. Are you are you a Bill Withers fan? Nah, not really. Not I mean, really. aware of, just not not my, just never the music that that spoke to me at all. But but uh, but obviously, like great and and aware of him. When I think of Bill Withers, if you see some videos of him from that time in the seven early seventies when he broke through. He was the perfect hybrid of, you know, a singer-songwriter. He was just sitting there on a stool playing guitar, and he had this great band around him, but also soul music and gospel music. Yeah. And I think he bridged that, those two worlds in a way that was very, very distinctive and still is, and I think has influenced a lot of people, myself included. Uh, but, so, Yeah, I mean, his, like, it, it would be hard to like music and be an alive person and not know the the most important Bill Bill Withers songs and and understand the the sort of like ripple effect that his sound had on on soul music and R&B music after him. You know? Yeah, yeah, and I know for some of my closest friends, Amos included, that's Bill Withers is always a a connecting sort of artist because I know he's a huge influence on Amos. And Amos actually got to meet him and. And oh, hang wow. with him, son. And, uh, y- you know, I think for the sort of community of musicians I'm in, uh, Bill Withers is always, like, yeah. front and center, you know? So it's cool to see that he's a big influence on Abraham Alexander as well. So I'll go through a few highlights uh, on the, on this record. Heart of Gold. And how a heart of gold Keep moving on Just keep pressing on and oh, my soul Please stay strong Cause it's turning cold My heart is turning I think you listen to that song and lyrically it gives you further insight into his family dynamic. And the crazy thing about this song is about midway through is that this is the first song he ever wrote. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I think about sometimes like Andre 3000, his first song was Heya, and it became this monster hit. You know, sometimes you knock it out of the park the first time, which is rare. Yeah. So I read this about this song. I was like, wow, this is because this was a standout track to me. And uh, you, you hear those first few verses. He says, in my mother's eyes, I can feel the love. And from my father's hands, a battle rages on my skin. Just like in a very different way, but just like Chevelle, 
Every line yeah. counts on this record. Yeah. So I'm going to read another quote from the NPR interview with Melissa Block about this song, because this one really hit me. And then when I got the story behind it, I was like, man, it's, it's as heavy as you think. So Abraham Alexander says about Heart of Gold, quote, he said, my dad was abusive. And one of the first memories that I had was being kicked on the floor. And, you know, it was difficult because I'm trying, even as a kid, like you're trying to see what are the dynamics between your father and your mother and who's protecting you and who's not. And as I get older and I look at the scars that's on my body, it's conflicting. And so writing the battleground being on my skin, the elements of my brain trying to understand, was it love, was it not? And trying to also piece in my mom. And, you know, a lot of times when I would get beat, like I would see her face. And she would be crying or there'd be times where she couldn't show any emotions. And so I'm trying to filter all these things. And Heart of Gold was the first song that I ever wrote. I love how he throws that in at the very end. The first song he ever wrote, it was like of of this album. I was like, man, Heart of Gold is the standout. How was, was it the that first? F- wow, because yeah, I felt well, that way too. So we we all we tend to react to songs in the in this in the in a similar way. But maybe that's just a testament to like if something's undeniable, you're going to react that way. Yeah, I it, it actually. So my my uh, you know R and B core is different than yours in that yours starts in the 70s and mine just starts in the 90s which is what which is I also up, an amazing amazing also <laughs> amazing era so when you hear bill withers i actually hear brian mcknight in in this a lot and i i just love the way that this song builds as well too is that this is such a cool album because the songs sort of go from point A to point B. I always, uh, so many of the songs go from point A to point B. And I think this is one of them. Yeah. This is the construction of this song. Yeah. The, the emotion he delivers in his performance on this. Yeah. And again, it's just incredible to me that this is his first song. And the first song, it's not surprising because he didn't start. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This one and, and Andre 3000. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Are you a fan of that song? Because I was listening is, to that recently. How is that the first song he ever wrote? It was like a first song guitar, I should say. Obviously, oh, he wrote songs okay. For it. I was like, I was like, this is like no, the third album. No, yeah, obviously, okay. this, yeah, that was incorrect. Actually, I mean, the first okay. song he first time he picked up a guitar and tried to write a song that was Hey Ah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. We we, we got to do an Outcast album at some point. We'd love to do an Outcast. I mean, album. which one? The question is, Aquem and I. Uh, we'll, we'll pick <sighs> one of them. You know, AT Aliens was always my favorite. The second AT one. Aliens, I think, is probably the more fun one to do, but Aquemini is probably a little more interesting <laughs> than than. And what is the one after Aquemini? That was the one that had bombs over Baghdad. And, right, 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 right. Yeah, their yeah. run was kind of short. I mean, it was those four records, and then the Love Below uh, speaker box sort of double Speaker, album. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, what yep. was it? What was it? Love below, and I'm forgetting that was it speaker, speaker box. Was that no be, speaker box and love below? Love I below. think are the yeah yeah. Which and were basically two solo albums put together. Correct. Right. 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 Yeah. When you when you kept saying that that uh, that hey, I was the first song you ever wrote. I'm like, does Mulu not know that? No, I know that, that, that was <laughs> that was uh, my apologies. First song no, no, he ever no. wrote on guitar. Got it. Got it. Got it. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because they had monster hits before that. Obviously, for sure. Yeah. I loved. I loved Heart of Gold, but it was. It was right there for me as well. Yeah. Another great tune. Another standout to me is Blood Under the Bridge, which I think is Mm. right after that one. That middle portion of the record is really powerful. Time changes the soul, the circle of life. We rise and we fall Don't be 
afraid The love that we share Will remain in the grave Scars don't blind me Silver lining yep. And that's a song that's dedicated to his adoptive family And You know, these people played a big part in his life Have played a big part in his life So I'm read another quote um, From that same NPR interview Melissa Block says, you, apart from your birth family, you ended up with an adoptive family in Texas, yeah? And Abraham Alexander says, quote, yes, I did. And Blood Under the Bridge is a song that is dedicated to them. And you know, they say that blood is thicker than water, but that doesn't necessarily apply for me. And that has given me life, and that's been there for me, and that showed me how to be compassionate, how to love. And I'm so, so thankful for them for giving me the courage to really pursue something that I thought was not attainable. So it seems like this adoptive family were you know as much as as much as any group of people or individuals were the ones who really encouraged him to do this and mm. you know sometimes you just there's so many circumstances where you have very talented people who their life circumstance doesn't give them it feels like it doesn't permit them to pursue this kind of career in in yeah. music and look it's a hard way to go it's a hard even when you have success you don't always you can you can struggle you know uh so it's not for everyone but Sometimes it's just someone or a group of people who tell you, no, you, you should do this. And it it's sort of like, like, it's like one of those things where the only way, like it, I, I, I was thinking about it. I was like, well, as you were saying it, it's a hard way to make it your career, but what if you just didn't make it your career, but it's almost like you don't have enough time to be great at it unless you're doing it all the time. And- <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes, like, that makes that, perfect sense to me. It, that it would be great if it was just a hobby, but if it was just a hobby, you wouldn't be that good at it. Like you need to dedicate so much time to it to be good at it, which is which is separates the and is the reason why it has to be your career. Or you just there there it seems like almost impossible to you know have a normal career and also be a great musician. That's exactly how I feel about it. Yeah, I couldn't. I can't see just doing it as a hobby. Now, now, a lot of people do, and by the way, they're very talented people who, you know, have a nine to five and do it as a hobby. So I'm not trying to besmirch that in any way. But for me, I just, I can't, it's hard for me to picture that because it's the kind of uh, career and lifestyle that you, that you sort of have to throw yourself all the way into. Yeah. And you have to be ready to roll with everything that comes with it. And, but again, what happens is along the way, like moments like when I met this this fan of mine in North Carolina and to hear what Gone Forever meant to him. And there are all these incredible moments that happen. So I think those are the things that can keep you going or those are always the silver lining so you find them. But it's it's there's a lot that goes into it that can be soul crushing. But that's kind of part of the journey. And I just yeah. can't see doing it any other way but all in 100%. There's sort of the 10,000 hours thing that I think yeah. goes into it. You need to spend that time singing, writing, playing, performing, perfecting your instrument, whatever it is that you're doing. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's an all or nothing at all thing for me. I really loved, I don't know if it's Xavier or Xavier, which is the first song on the album. How many times I get carried away Like a leaf in a sea on a wave My life keeps passing each day Praying his memories won't The pictures on the wall will change And mentions of your name will paint But in the morning 
Will I see you again? Oh, I pray. But it's almost like a pillow. It's such like a nice dream. I love the way the album is produced. I love the way the album is produced and especially this song. It's just so dreamy and like almost soft, but also he sings it very strong and emotionally. It's a really cool album. And then the 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 last song on the album is like a reprise of the the chorus or whatever, like Amen, but is is a really cool intro to the uh to the album and I think one of the the best producer moments on the album is the way that this song sounds. Yeah, I think there's so much dynamic and nuance in the production. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about this a bunch of times recently with different artists, but you know, sometimes understanding where to leave the space. Yeah. And if you understand that, once you have the picture of where to leave the space, then it's like every sound just comes in and adds and elevates the song because it's all about his voice and the lyrics. Yeah. And him telling his story. But you're so right. The production, there is a warmth to it. Uh, you know, in a very different way than these sacred souls, but it's the same kind of thing. It has the same kind of effect that it just gives him this perfect backdrop to just do his thing. Really cool album. I had, I had never heard of him or heard of it. And I was honestly 20 seconds into the first track. I was excited to listen to the rest of the album because I, it, it gives you a good hint. And the album is, does have like, dynamics to it. it it doesn't it doesn't stay in the pocket of that of of the first song for the for the entire album at all i mean i i think it hits a lot of different sonic signatures and 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 different you know different feels and different styles but but what a an incredible album what a really cool album talk Great about artist. a strong debut yeah someone making a statement and in a sense telling you their story yeah uh, this is really powerful. The challenge becomes what happens, what is after you telling your your story? That's the most powerful thing you have, right? <laughs> I mean, it, this, this has been told, said a million times. And I think for a lot of times rap music, it is the, 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 the thing that is talked about as a lot is your entire life tells the story of your first album. And then your second album, you have... 18 months of a story. And most of the time you were just touring and dealing with record labels and business and making more money than you ever had in your life. So, you know, when you have a success with the first album, so what is that second album about? That is the, not that he can't, not that uh, Abraham Alexander can't achieve that, but when, when you have such a powerful story to tell with your first album, you know, how do you come back? That next record can be daunting. And I've seen artists go at it so many different ways. Sometimes you just Maybe flip the script, go, go in a whole different direction. Yeah. Or the other device I've seen some people do is, uh, what was the record we discussed? The guy from, he's in a punk band, but it was, uh, is it Aaron West in the Roaring Twenties? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We take on the, the uh, different. Take on a character. Yeah. yeah. And sort of tell the story of another character. Sometimes I feel like that's a way around it. If you, if you, if it's sort of biographical, autobiographical writing is, is the way you want to, is what you do. And that's a way you tell your story. Now you maybe tell someone else's story on the next one. It's funny. You should say I bought tickets to go see 
Liz Fair is doing like a 20 date exile in Guyville. I saw tour. that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I bought, I bought, I set a reminder when I, when I got the email that she was doing the tour, I set a reminder on my phone Friday, 10 AM to buy tickets. I bought tickets to see her in Brooklyn, do that album, do exile in Guyville. That'll be. That's going to be incredible. And that's a long record too, isn't it? That's like 19 yeah. tracks and, yeah. and it's kind of all over the place in the best way possible. Yeah. I mean, I'm, so excited to to see that i haven't been this it's not the show's not until november and i have to do a very good job i have to do a, a specific job of not talking myself out of going which is what you know i'm like uh, you got to commit Brooklyn. to it right now commit yeah. to it right now well i buy i spend 150 dollars on tickets so so i've <laughs> i've made a commitment but then you know it's in fucking brooklyn like why can't it just be in manhattan why do i have to go to brooklyn but i i'm all i'm all for it i'm you gotta not gonna be all in got to be all yeah, in <laughs> i'm all in so thank you tammy for the suggestion again i i explained earlier in the pod just you know one of the 75 to com is the easiest way to send in a suggestion until next time that's it stay free my goose 